0: The Bible concerns itself with the question of why are people lost? In the discussion of that question, there is the discussion about predestination and election. And regarding predestination and election, there are at least two, maybe more, but at least two primary schools of thought relative to that. The first school of thought is that it is individual and unconditional. That is that before time, God chose certain individuals, marked out certain individuals to be saved. And there's nothing that person can do, good or bad, and it's not based on their own merits. It's just based on God's sovereign choice of that individual or those individuals. And that their election is unconditional. There's nothing that individual or individuals can do to effect God's choice. God has chosen certain individuals to be saved, and by extension, then, has chosen certain individuals to be condemned. Because those not chosen to be saved, there's only one other alternative. And so you have the theology that is individual and con- unconditional. The second approach to the question is that it is cooperative. It is conditional. It's not based on God choosing the individual. It's based on God choosing the plan, the means by which man can be saved. And he invites man to be part of that. Man can have a free choice. He can choose to come to God or he can choose not to come to God. If he chooses to come to God, there are certain conditions that God has revealed that he wants man to abide by, to demonstrate that he's willing to bow before God. You see that in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. There is certainly a discussion of election and predestination in this text. But did you notice the phrase that was repetitive throughout the text in all 14 verses. Throughout, the emphasis was in him, in him, in him, in Christ. It was not that man had no choice apart from this and that therefore required some irresistible movement of the Spirit upon him to then be able to choose to do good. That before that irresistible Movement of the Spirit, he could not choose to do good spiritually. He could not choose to believe. But now with that irresistible moving of the Spirit, he can choose to do good and now choose to believe. Because now he has been chosen by God and determined he is going to be, he or she are going to be one of the saved. But in Ephesians chapter 1, that's not what it says. It says salvation is in Christ, in Him. In Christ, in the beloved, in whom we believe. Christ is the answer to man's salvific problem, salvation problem. And in Christ, God developed the plan whereby man, lost man, can be saved. He did not choose the man to be saved. He chose the plan whereby lost man can be saved. And that plan integrates and circles around and is centered in Him, Christ Jesus our Lord. Understand the nature of God and the nature of man. Yes, God can choose whom God chooses to choose. We're not going to impose on God's sovereignty at all, but put a peg mark on that sovereignty, we'll come back to that at the end because the question is really not of God's sovereignty, it's a question of something else. But God choosing an individual or certain individual be saved and therefore by extension certain individuals or an individual be lost. Doesn't make God a benevolent God. It makes him a cruel God. Illustration. Had I a dog and I tied that dog to a post. And gave just enough length in the rope or whatever it was that was tethered to the post. And just outside the length of that rope, I held the juiciest steak you could ever slobber over. And just outside the reach of that dog's length of rope, I held the stake and said... Don't you want this? Don't you want this? Everybody walking by can see the length of rope has an end to it, and the dog can't reach the end of the rope, and what would we say? That is really a mean thing to do that dog. Because you offer him this stake knowing, knowing he can't reach the stake, because you have limited him. And so God holding salvation out for man. And yet, only choosing certain individuals and certain individuals not being chosen is like God holding out salvation at the end, only giving that man that's not chosen so much rope to hold it at the end, saying, don't you want this, don't you want this, don't you want this? Knowing all along man can't reach that far, man can't do anything to reach that stake. That would be unmerciful. To hold something out like that, knowing that when he did so, the man or woman that is held out, that's held out before, can do nothing to attain that because they weren't chosen. We would say of God, that's just not right. That's just not fair. You are a God of mercy where is the mercy in that so when we think about this we think about the idea of predestination and election it is either one is either one or the other it is either God has chosen certain individuals for salvation and therefore not chosen individuals or God has chosen the plan and therefore man has the option with his free will to choose to bow to God or not. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, according to the divine grace of God, there are some that are predestined to salvation and some that are predestined to destruction from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so the question is not, the question is not, is God in control? The question is, how does God attain this? But when we address the question of, is is God really in control? I want to think about that from two or three points of view. Number one, I will think about his sovereignty for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, it says of his sovereignty, he causes the rain and the sun to fall, the rain to fall, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Here's God's providential care. We call this general providence. Just for discussion's sake, here's the general providence of God. The general providence of God, he causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. We would not have rain and sun to shine were it not according to the general provisions of God to make that available for us. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, we learn something else about the sovereignty of God. Colossians 1, He is before all things and in him all things consist. And corresponding to that, Psalm 36 and verse 6 says, his righteousness are higher than the mountains and his judgments greater than the deep because it is God who protects and gives life. The Hebrew writer in chapter 1 will speak to the sovereign plan of God, the sovereign sovereignty of God or the providence of God when he says in verse 3, <coughs> backing up to verse 1, God who at various times in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his power, of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself had purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why do all things exist? Because of God's general providence. The very word that said, let there be in the seven days or the six days is the very word that still controls things today. According to verses 9 and 10, however, the time will come in which all this will come to an end. Verse 8 says, but you, the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness, the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Paul will say, quoting the poets of Athens, In him we live, move, and have our very being. Our very being is because of the providence of God, the general providence of God. What we eat, the air we breathe, The rain we receive. In him we live and move and we breathe. The very things that we have that uphold all things are by the word of his power, his general providence. But there's also his special providence. You see that demonstrated like in the ten plagues. When God directly intervenes, the ten plagues take place. And then you have the miracles that take place. And then you have the occasion in the days of Ahab when it did not rain for three days. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you see there was an occasion in the life of Paul when when God's direct providence saved his life. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9 and 10. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us, from so great a death and does deliver us. And him in whom we trust that he still will deliver us. Paul said God delivered us from death. Here God directly intervened in the life of Paul. And whatever was going on that caused that delivered him from death. So in God's special providence, God in his special providence sometimes works miraculously. And then sometimes God works non-miraculously, he, not non-miraculously. Do you remember the time that Paul is boarding the ship to go to Rome? And when he boards the ship, the Lord tells him, look, don't anybody leave the ship. If you leave the boat, those that leave the boat are going to die. Stay with the boat. And the boat gets out, and hits rough waters. And begins to break apart and they begin to throw everything overboard. In fact, they're going to jump overboard. And Paul said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't, leave, the boat. don't leave the boat. Stay with the boat. Stay with the boat. Well, the boat began to break up. Those that could not swim grabbed a piece of wood and floated to shore. Those that could swim, swam to shore. And there was not a life that was lost. God's non-miraculous providence intervened in their life. And I suspected we took the time this morning to go around the room, there'll be circumstances in our life that we might each label God's non-miraculous providence happening in our lives. I know I have a couple of stories like that myself. And so we see that God is in control. This world is not in chaos. Our society may be confused and chaotic. But God's not the author of confusion. He's the author of peace. And while we might understand why this world is operating like this world is operating, because God did not reveal that to us, rest assured, God's in control. Either by His general providence or His special providence. And so don't walk away saying, you know, this world is this just out of control. Wait a minute. Then what we're saying is God has no control over things. Does God allow man his share in what's going on? Yes. We'll explore that in just a moment. But just because God allows man his share does not mean God has lost control of his will. Working out in the lives of people. So when you think about that, you have God is sovereign you think about his general providence and you think about his special providence. And then I think about Jesus himself. Jesus is our evidence. Jesus is our evidence. What did he do? He walked on water. He healed the sick. He made those who couldn't hear hear and those who couldn't speak to speak. And he raised the dead. Demonstrating what? That God come down from heaven, is working in this world. And so the question is not, why is man lost? The question is, why is lost man not saved? And according to William Smith in his treatise on Calvinism, on page 51 and 52, he says, because God wanted it that way. What kind of merciful God is that? Second of all, I want us to look at this. I want us to think about this for just a moment. Can we freely choose? God's called upon us to choose. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Well, my, the fox didn't translate there. That, see, that's to keep you awake. <laughs> I had Dana put that in there so that everybody would go, did he lose it here? See, it worked. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. So one thing that we will discover in preacher camp is when you make a mistake or something happens when you're preaching that draws attention to it, by everybody else just pause and calls it, draw attention to it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 9. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the, the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will, re, will again rejoice over you for your good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn your heart to the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Because in these are the words of life and the words of death. You get to choose. Moses tells them, you get to choose life or you get to choose death. And how do you get to choose life or death? By how you choose God. If you choose life, it's because you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You have submitted to him, as Moses says. But that also allows that you can choose death. In Joshua chapter 24... In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. As Joshua's ending his life, this is what he says. It seems evil to you to serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. That's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What does Joshua call upon the people of God to do? To choose. If God has already elected them, and therefore predestined them to be saved, then why does Joshua tell them to choose? Why does Moses offer them life or death? But that's also true in the New Testament. Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, look at verse 17. John chapter 7 and verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Did we see that? If anyone wills to do his will. If it's individual and un- unconditional, there's no will involved. One is chosen or one is not chosen. But notice what he says: if anyone wills to will, he gives man the ability to will, to choose to know. And he says, if any man wills to will, he can know the word of God. He clearly says that. And so, first of all, what we see here is God calls upon man to choose him. But God also has people that reject him. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is longsuffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. If man is already chosen, independent of his will, then why is God longsuffering, leaving man the choice to repent? But here he says there's some who need God's long-suffering because they need to repent. In Acts chapter 13, <coughs> in Acts chapter 13, in verse 46. Acts chapter 13, and verse 46. (coughs) Then Paul and Barnabas grew, grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. (coughs) But since you reject it, And judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn from the Gentiles. What did God do? He said, we preach the Gentiles first. But what did they do? They rejected it. But if man's already chosen, then how can he reject it? Do you remember the statement of the Lord (coughs) when he stands and looks at Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not. Now, if man's already chosen, (coughs) why is Jesus lamenting that they had rejected him? If they are already chosen, where's the lamentation? Because these are chosen to reject. You see, God has those that reject him as well. (coughs) Pardon me. God's offer of salvation is not selective. If God's offer of salvation is selective, then that makes God a respecter of persons. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. (laughs) Four, there's no partiality with God. Well, predestination and election that says that God has chosen some and therefore rejected others makes God a respecter of persons because that choosing, that election is independent of anything man has done or can do. It's simply because God chose that person. And so, God's offer of salvation is not selective. God's offer of salvation, 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, is for all men. Look at the will of God here. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable, the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. What's God's desire? God's desire is not willing that any should be lost. Therefore, he's long-suffering. Why? Because he desires all men to be saved. And to what? Come to knowledge of the truth. Why does he desire for all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth if man has already been predestined and elected independent of his coming to the knowledge of the truth? Why does he need to do that? Because he's already elected. You see, God's offer of salvation is not selective. And then look at this. God is not the author of sin. If God has chosen and made the circumstances such in a person's life that they can do no other thing Than sin. Who's at fault? It's not man. Because man can't choose to sin. And God arranged all the circumstances around his life so that he can't be right. That means that every ugly mean thing that happens in this world is God's fault. Pause just a moment. Outside the lesson, but it ties into what I just said. Who is always the one questioned? When it's a hurricane or tornado, a tornado or some random shooting that takes multiple lives. Why did God allow this? God, you are the one who made this. You are the one that is the blame for this loss of life and this chaos. If you, not you, then who? Because you control all things, And you have chosen the ones that are marked out for good, and the ones that are marked out for evil, and the ones that are marked out for evil. You have arranged the circumstances so they cannot be good or do good. Therefore, you are the author of all this meanness and this confusion. Who gets the blame? Isn't that what we hear in our society today? God is the one that's at fault. Do you not see where the roots of that come from? The roots of that come from a theology that says that man cannot choose to do good spiritually until the Spirit has irresistibly operated upon him because, because he is inherently a sinner. Because the sin that Adam committed, he inherited. And therefore, he is absolutely and totally depraved and can do nothing good. He's marked out for destruction unless Independent of his will, independent of his choice, God has chosen him and operated upon him irresistibly so man cannot resist God, having no choice in it. God gets the blame. That makes God not only mean, that makes God the originator of all that's evil. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift cometh from above. And no shadow of turning every good and perfect gift, and that is consistent. God is the author of all that's good. Satan is the author of all that's bad and all that's evil. And man gets to choose life or man gets to choose death. One or the other. And then, I want you to see, to me, this is the most powerful point of the whole thing. Without choice, there's no love. Without choice, there's no love. You see, if I have no choice, if I have no choice in the matter, if I am unconditionally elected, therefore predestined to be saved, if I have no choice in the matter, then where is love moving me to serve Him? It has nothing to do with my love. It's all independent of anything I would choose. I can't choose to love Him. I can't choose not to love Him. I can't choose love. I said in the beginning we put a peg on sovereignty. If that's the definition of love, then the question is not a matter of sovereignty. The question is a matter of character. Is God of such a character? Does God have such character that He would deprive man of His freedom to choose to love Him? Look at Ephesians chapter 1 real quickly. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and look at verse 18. In this first prayer of Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he begins at verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Him, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, three thats that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Did you notice that second what? What are the riches of his calling in the saints? That's not our inheritance. The riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. In who? In people who have what? The freedom to choose to love or not? You see, the playing field's got to be level. It's got to be balanced. Satan Satan must have an approach to man just as God has an approach to man. And Satan has his inducements. They're all of the flesh, and God has His inducements, and they're all of the heart. Satan has His inducements and they're all in, 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 inducements, and they're all tangible. God has His inducements, and they're all spiritual. You can't taste them, can't touch them, can't feel them, can't smell them. Can't None of those things. They're all matters of the heart. And what He's saying is, can I appeal to your heart? That you would freely choose to love me. Have you ever loved and been hurt? You see, the fellowship of love is risky. When you love, you risk yourself. We risk ourselves. When we choose to love, we risk ourselves. The fellowship of love is risky because that love may be spurned or rejected, may be hurt. It may be completely destroyed, but we still made the choice to love. Why did God create man? Did he create man so that he could mark out some to be saved and some to be lost? No. He created man because he wanted fellowship with him. But he wanted fellowship with a man who would love him. You see, in the first instance, what he said is, I'm going to make everything such that you are going to have no problems. This garden is going to be lush. I'm going to put you in this garden. I'm going to provide everything for you. Everything you're possibly going to need. But, but, there's one thing. See that tree over there? Don't eat of it. Now, you get to choose. God's grace has provided this life, but you get to choose. Adam, you get to choose the fruit of that tree or not. But understand, if you choose the fruit of that tree, if you make that choice, then you're going to be put out of this garden and separated from me. And he did, and he was because he chose wrong you see what we inherited from adam was not his sin what we inherited from adam was the freedom of choice that god gave him and we get to make the same choice adam gets to make look in jeremiah chapter 3. i ask have you been spurned listen to how god feels look at jeremiah chapter 3. jeremiah chapter 3 verse 19 and verse 20. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage to the host of nations? And I said, you shall call me, my father, and turn away from me. Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me. O house of Israel, says the Lord. Do you hear the lamentation in that? Turn to the book of Ezekiel real quickly. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 31 and 32. Listen to these these lamentable words here. Verses 31 and 32. Verse 30 says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, according to his ways, says the Lord your God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that you will not... So that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed... And get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, said the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. God said, I don't take delight in people when people are lost. Listen. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Why? Because I take no joy in those who are lost. If man's already marked out for salvation then who did Jesus come to seek and to save? Because man has no choice in the matter. There's nothing man can do to alter that choice. But Jesus says, I came to love you. Will you choose to love me? And isn't it that way, isn't it that way in the family? In the family, it says, I choose to love her. And she chooses to love me. And as a result of that common love, there was a mighty risk that was taken. Create life. And when those two lives were created, the risk was, they could choose life or they could choose death. But Christ died that we might will to will to know his will. And that same appeal of repentance that was to Israel is the appeal of man today. Paul said there was a period of time that God winked at ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Jesus says, except you likewise repent, you shall all, you, you shall all likewise perish. Man has a choice in the matter. Man is not marked out for salvation. The means by which God will save man has been predetermined and God has revealed that. That is predestination and foreknowledge. And those who the elect are the, those that have chosen God and chosen His plan. And it is those that have forgiveness and are forgiven. It is those that, have, that are adopted. It is those people that are redeemed. You see, love requires a choice. If I don't get to choose, there's no love involved. But Jesus said this, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. There's nothing in that that says Those I have selected are saved and those I have not are lost. We did not inherit Adam's sin. We inherited Adam's freedom to choose. And we get to choose life or death. The decision is profound. It has eternal results. Let's choose life. Because we choose Him. While we stand and while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.